Good morning. We'll take God's Word this morning and find Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're going to learn today four lessons that change our life based on Jonah's encounter with God. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you as a parent, if you have children, have ever told your children, I want you to go to your room and I want you to clean it. Because, first of all, it's a blessing for you to live in this house free of charge and to have your clothes bought for you and food provided for you and cooked for you and everything done, and you should be thankful to be in this home. The only thing we ask is that you do what we tell you. Now go clean your room. And about the time you say that to your child, they turn around and go in and get on the Xbox and start playing video games. Or perhaps they pull their phone out. Well, that's to kids, and kids say, well, what about you all as adults? Well, okay, let's move on up the chain. Let's say that uh, you know that there's someone that you want to have a relationship with, but they're not walking with the Lord. And you all know what the pattern is for dating, right? If someone you are dating is not taking you closer to God, then your responsibility is to move away, because if you don't, guess what happens? They will take you further away from God. And I don't care if that's a boy or that's a girl. That's just a pattern that you generally, as a believer, should be observing very closely. And as Adrian Rogers, the famous Southern Baptist preacher, used to say, only date a potential mate. Don't get tangled in relationships that could lead you down the wrong road. But what if you just rebel because you know that that's what you want to do and you go and end up in a relationship that takes you away from the Lord? Well... God told you not to do that, and you did it anyway, right? The point is, we can be some stubborn people. And sometimes we serve God out of obligation instead of blessing. And this is exactly what we run into when we come to this stubborn Hebrew prophet whose name is Dove. Now, Jonah was anything but a dove. He was more like a rock. He was a knucklehead, folks. I'm telling you, he was a hard head. And this whole story about Jonah going to Nineveh is not a story about a prophet and a fish. It's a story about God and his servant. It's really not even about Nineveh. It's all about how God deals with Jonah. And so you have to look at it that way, how God wants to work with his messenger. So what we want to do this morning is just take a look at what happens to a man who God gives a second chance to. And by the way, some of you sitting here, and me included, we're all in this camp. God has given us multiple chances. What do you do with that? Well, some people run to God and some people run away from God. But we're going to learn today what we should do. So let's look in Jonah chapter 3. And I've kind of put a little outline up here for you. God is going to recommission Jonah. Now, what I want you to do is turn back to chapter 1 real quick because I want to read these first few verses. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, remember I told you that that concept of the presence of the Lord is not Right there, it's the concept of him being a prophet, being summoned up to God's court, and God telling him, you as my prophet are told to go and do this. Jonah, of course, runs. God causes a great storm, a great fish. And then Jonah is swallowed and spit back up. And now look in verse 1 of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And by the way, God didn't change his message. What did he say? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Jonah, you are not getting away from me. One man said, stop waiting for God to tell you something different. He's not going to do it in your life. God's not going to change. His holiness doesn't change. His plans and His purpose for our life to be more like Jesus. They don't change. Stop waiting for God to tell you something different. God wants you to be the man or the woman or the boy or the girl that He's designed you to be. 
and he's not going to let you get very far. Jonah, go to Nineveh like I told you and preach what I say. Now notice what he omitted from chapter 3, verse 1 and chapter 1. He omitted here, for their evil has come up before me. You see, God was concerned about Nineveh's evil and Jonah wasn't. And by the way, when you study the Bible, there's a such thing as the omission in the text. And sometimes you have to read very carefully. And what is actually omitted that should be there is one of the central focuses of the passage. And in this passage, from chapter 4 at the end of the chapter, you've got people that are living in ignorance toward God who don't know spiritually their left hand from their right hand, and they're committing evil in the presence of God, and God wants them to be saved. But His people, specifically His man, could care less. Jonah did not care. So what does God say? Get up and go. Now, by the way, after you've been digested by a fish for three days, do you think that would change your mind? Uh, By the way, you know, as a pastor, you get to meet people all the time that have run from God. Some are stricken with cancer. Some are paralyzed. Some are sick. And you know, one of the ways that God gets people's attention is in a bed. Did you know that? Because God stops all of our busyness. He stops all the things that we think are essential and important. And God lays us flat on our back in sickness or in some kind of issue. And then we have ears to hear. Have you ever been there? I've told you all the story about me. God did this thing right to me. Calling me to do something and I didn't want to do it because I thought there were other things and God just allowed me to sit in a chair for about six months as a 20-some-year-old man. Couldn't work, couldn't do anything. All I could do, got tired of TV, didn't have smartphones then. Gives you a lot of time to think. And it lets you think about how small you are and how big God is. Transform my life, by the way. So what did Jonah do? Verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Remember the last time he arose and went where? To Tarshish. So now God's not only going to recommission him, he's going to reorient him. Remember, Jonah, the last time you went the wrong way, this time I want you to go north, go northeast. And so what happens? Uh, He's going to share. I thought I had a map up there, David. Did my map not come through? There it is. Now, look at this little map, because down in the bottom there, you'll see Joppa. That was the seaport where Jonah was told to go north, and he went west. And so God has him swirl around in a fish for a few days and he's vomited right back out on the sea, right out on the edge. And God says, now you're going to go again. By the way, that was a very long journey. Probably five, six hundred miles would take probably 30 days to walk or so to get there. So if Jonah was bleached out by a fish, more than likely he had uh, dried out and got a good suntan on his way up to Assyria. But nevertheless... It was quite an arduous task. Jonah go to Nineveh, and what did he do? Yes, Lord, I'll go. But I'm going to tell you something. He still didn't want to go. How do I know that? Over in chapter 4, verse 2. God, I don't want to go. Never did want to go. And next week we're going to learn about unthankfulness and how we should be thankful. But Jonah was so aggravated because he knew if he went and preached, God would forgive him, and he knew they would repent. But now notice what happens in verse 4. I'm going to read 3 again. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. So Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now can you imagine preaching a message with only eight words? Forty days, and you're going to be destroyed. Now, by the way, there's a lot to be said here because there's a lot of archaeology that talks about the city of Nineveh having great walls that were eight miles around. 
Some of them were so wide that you could drive two chariots side by side on top all the way around the wall. People began to discuss how long would it actually take Jonah. You know, people in the West don't have anything else to do but to sit around and question God's word. How could it take three days to walk eight miles around? You know, Nineveh was a pretty big city, by the way. And there were ways that prophets would go in. They would be welcomed as a prophet. Certain things would happen. It took Jonah three days to get through the city and preach. But notice what happened on the very first day. He goes through and he starts preaching. In 40 days, God's going to judge this place. Now notice what happened. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Amazing. Do you all know who the Ninevites were? I told you before they were the Assyrians, and you can read about this in the book of Nahum. They were really rough people. I shared a little bit about what they did. You know, they impaled people. They used to impale them alive on a sharp fence post. They would skin people. And I won't go into all kinds of graphic detail, but they were not very nice to children either. And you can actually read the book of Nahum. That would be a good exercise for you to read as to when God says they were doing evil in his sight, what they were doing. And God was angry at these people, and he was going to judge them. But he wanted them to know that he was going to judge them, so he sent Jonah to be a warning to them before he destroyed them. And so Nineveh, when they hear the word, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed, you know what happened to them? To everyone's surprise, the pagans repented. Now, these were rough customers, by the way. I mean mean people. Rough warrior-like people. And Jonah preached, 40 days and you're going to be judged. And they get down on their knees and they start begging for God's mercy. This is quite a lesson in human life. You never know what is going on in a person's heart and life behind their rough, tough skin, do you? You know, we look at people sometimes, they, ha they may have long hair, they may have piercings all over them, they may have tattoos and sleeves up their arm and their neck, teardrops tattooed on their eye for different reasons. And inside that person's heart, they're dying. Dying. There's a longing in their soul they know they're not right with God. They know there's not something, something's not right in their spiritual life. And they're searching and they're looking. But the only thing they know is that rough exterior. Waiting for God's messenger to share God's love with them. And they'll repent. Who knows? Maybe they will. But here Jonah preaches eight words. And the city of Nineveh repented, and the text says they believed God. Not only did they believe God, but further it says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We're going to see from the king on the throne all the way down to the pulper in the land, they all believed God, and they all repented of their evil. Now, some people have suggested perhaps Jonah preached more than eight words. Maybe he did. We don't know. There's a lot of questions we would love to ask. By the way, if you go back in history, you'll discover there were many events that happened in the city of Nineveh that caused them uh, to believe. Ninevites were not atheists. They didn't sit under uh, Charles uh, Dawkins. They didn't sit under him or anybody else in a university and just say, well, we just don't even believe there's a God. No, they were polytheists. They believed in many gods. As a matter of fact, they had two major gods, and guess what they were? There's an irony here. They had a fish god named Dagon. Isn't that interesting? And God used a fish to swallow Jonah. Perhaps that got out on social media and went all the way there and said, the fish god has delivered this prophet to come all the way here and tell us. I mean, you don't know what God uses. And then they had another god of the sea. So perhaps they tied those two things together. We don't know. But one thing we do know is that Jonah told them that he was from the God of heaven and the God of heaven was going to destroy them. But they had had a supernatural solar eclipse. You go back and read the annals of history. There was a complete solar eclipse and they thought the gods were judging them. 
There was also some famine that happened. And then there was a, a gigantic earthquake that happened during that time. And these people were listening, by the way. They were listening. Maybe, maybe God is speaking. And now this prophet comes up out of the deep from a fish and tells us we're going to be destroyed. We've already seen these things. And they believed God. Now, the response of the people was to fast and put on sackcloth. The idea of sackcloth is goat hair. What you would do is pull off all your clothes. You all imagine this. And you would take prickly, stiff goat hair and wrap it all the way around your body. No fruit of the looms either, by the way. And the point was that every time you moved, it would gouge you, and you would be so uncomfortable. And you would begin thinking about your relationship with God. And every time you moved in discomfort, you would set your mind on something that God had told you to do. And then, on top of that, you wouldn't eat. You, you would fast. That means you deny yourself food. What is the purpose of fasting? So that every time you get hungry and you want to satisfy your flesh, it's a reminder of your dependence upon God. Nothing wrong with fasting. It's not commanded in the New Testament. It's not an ordinance that we have to do. But it is something good that gets our attention. And we all perhaps should practice it. But they put on sackcloth. They put on a fast. And it went from the greatest to the least. Look in verse 6 at what the action was of the king. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and actually sat in ashes. Look at the actions of this man. Now, can you imagine this? This would be like somebody walking in the halls of Congress during a presidential speech. Walking down the aisle of Congress and saying, 40 days... God's going to judge America. And He's going to lower the boom. And the reason is because of A, B, C, and D. Prepare yourself to meet God. And turn around and walk out. Now can you imagine Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, all the Republicans, because they need it too, by the way, some of them living up there in debauchery and drunkenness, chasing people around. And I'm sure if Jonah had a chance to preach up there, he'd talk to them about their immorality, their sensuality, their greed, the fact that they want laws and blessings on them that they don't want on the people. They want you to have Obamacare, but they want Congress care. They don't want you to have your Social Security, but they want their Congress pension. Can you imagine what it would be like to preach for eight minutes in Congress. They'd be ready to kill you by the time you got out the door. But I want you to imagine this, that they would hear that God was angry and that they would all bow to their knees and ask God to forgive them and beg for mercy. Can you imagine? That's what happened in Nineveh. The king set the example and then he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. And this is what he said, quote, By the decree of the king and his nobles, this would be like from the President of the United States and the entire Congress, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And here's the reason. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow. What a message. Talking about repentance, that's what repentance means, by the way. It's a, it's a change in mind. They changed the way of thinking that their evil is what brought them power and now they believed that the God of heaven had spoken. and He was angry against their evil and now they wanted to do what God told them to do. And they repented. Well, what was the response of God? What did He do? Well, look in verse 10. 
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. I mean, listen to me, folks. They, they shut down the immorality houses. They closed the abortion clinics. These people got the picture that God was not happy with sin. All the LGBTQIAC movements were canceled for the day. Rainbow flags were taken down and no one was celebrating immorality. There were no gay pride marches in the streets. No government buildings were told that you're going to comply. And there were no vaccine mandates. They stopped that ridiculousness. And this is what they said, we'd better focus on our evil and the things that we are doing against God that displeases Him. And we'd better repent in sackcloth and ashes. And they did it. And God saw it. And what did He do? The text says that He relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Now by the way, there's been a lot of ink spilled here over God changing His mind. You know, there's some places in the Scripture where it says, God says, I'm going to do this. And then the people repent or change their mind or humble themselves. And then the text comes back and tells us that God did not do what God was going to do. And so some people try to make a great big deal out of this and say, see there, God doesn't even know what He's going to do. So therefore, He waits on people to do what they're going to do before God knows what He's going to do. There's a word in theology for that, and it's called baloney. God knew exactly what He was going to do. The concept and the fact that it is recorded here that God changed His mind from what He was going to do is not put there for Nineveh's sake. It's put there for the reader's sake. God knew they would repent. God was going to destroy them if they didn't. And God knew that they would repent, and He knew that He would relinquish His disaster. Now, by the way, if you read in history, 150 years later, just, just like our nation's how old now? 230-some years. 150 years later, the Assyrians went back to evil, and guess what God did? He judged Assyria. Babylon went in and cleaned house. So this repentance, if you want to call it that, or whatever you want to call it, this change in wickedness only lasted for a short period. And then this nation ended up being judged. And you can read the book of Nahum because God tells them exactly what's going to happen. But the point is, it worked here. And God relented His disaster. Now, Jonah, by the way, next week we're going to learn, oh, this made him mad. Now, you would think, by the way, as a preacher, that if you went in and preached a message and the whole city converted and went into sackcloth and ashes, you would, you would think that even as a preacher, you'd be just a little bit excited, wouldn't you? I mean, that's the shortest message he's ever preached. Could you all imagine me preaching eight words? I mean, I see your faces. Eight words and they repent. And Jonah, instead of being grateful and celebrating, he's mad as he can be. As a matter of fact, he's going to go out and pout and ask God to kill him. This is how hard this rascal was. Jonah's an interesting character. But here's the point. God had a message for him, and here was the message. Jonah, young man, you need Nineveh as bad as Nineveh needs you. Jonah, you don't know what it's like to have grace offered and accepted to somebody who doesn't deserve it. Jonah, you're happy as long as blessing's in your family. You're happy as blessing as long as, long as blessing is happening in your street. You're happy as long as blessing is happening in your town. But you don't want it to happen anywhere else, Jonah. You know, that would be kind of like us seeing revival sweep in to Hamas. By the way, the word up here in the verse, where is it? They would turn from their violence 
That word violence is actually the word Hamas. That's where Hamas gets its name from, by the way, the terrorist organization. ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah. It would be like the war veterans who went over and fought against them, seeing those people repent in sackcloth and ashes toward the God of heaven. And by the way, we had some missionaries here this week. We have seen that. One of our graduates who lives in a disclosed area, I won't disclose it, so it would be undisclosed, has a church right above a training center. We have pictures of him baptizing Hamas terrorists over in the Jordan River. They got saved. And you know, this happened shortly after 911, and I'm going to tell you something. There was a little hostility in me. I was angry. But then you start seeing these people get saved and God begins to work on our heart and realize these people don't have a clue about the God of the Bible. And when you talk to them, you'll understand they have no clue. They need to hear. And here was Jonah. And God told Jonah, Jonah, you need Nineveh as bad as Nineveh needs you. And by the way, that's a good lesson for us as believers. Did you know that? Sometimes we want to isolate ourselves from the world. We don't want to rub shoulders with people who aren't like us because heaven forbid they would tarnish our holiness. Or we might rub shoulders with someone who doesn't act like us. Don't act like that as a Christian. God didn't put us here to be insulated or isolated. He put us here to be transformational instruments of His grace. He doesn't want you running from people who think differently than you, people who may have a dirty mouth, people who might have a drinking problem. Now, He doesn't want you going to the bar and sitting with them. Please hear me. But He he doesn't want you avoiding them completely. How shall they hear without a preacher? Don't apply that to a foreign land until we're ready to apply that to our own life. It's much easier to pay $500 a month to a missionary and send them overseas than it is for us to build a relationship with somebody we know doesn't know Jesus, to build a relationship and get to talk to them about God's grace. And by the way, it only took eight words for Jonah, for God to take Jonah's eight words and change their heart. Who knows, it may only take eight sentences from you. You know, it's a startling thing to tell somebody, you know something, God loves you. He loves you, and Christ died for you. Will you not accept His grace? Why would you not accept God's grace and His offer of forgiveness for your sin? Why would you not do that? I mean, it's pretty startling. By the way, that message rocked my world as a young, hard-hearted teenager, rocked my life that God loved me like that. So here's the point. What do we learn from this encounter that Jonah has with God? Four, Four lessons to transform our life. Number one, don't fight God because He's going to win. Did you know that? He will win. Jeremiah chapter 18, listen to what God told Jeremiah about his nation. The word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? You remember this story? God took Jeremiah to the potter's house and he grabbed this lump of clay and put it up and started working with his hand and it had a flaw in it. What did the potter do? He just squashed it. Squashed it. And God says, do you not think, nation of Israel, that I can do that with you? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. And by the way, hold on for a minute. Let's apply this nationally. Take the largest, most powerful nation in the world you want to. Is it the United States? That's questionable. Do you not think for one minute that God could absolutely bring us to our knees? I mean, listen, folks. 
Seriously. You know, God could just whip up a couple of hurricanes to come in from the west and the south and come in from the east and a polar vortex down from the north. This is nothing for God, by the way. God can make the wind so strong He would knock out all the power. He could then bring the Arctic cold down and freeze everything where people have no way to heat themselves or feed themselves. Do you not think God could do that if He wanted to? And He could freeze us. He could, he could starve us. On the flip side, in the summertime, God could bring in the heat so hot that air conditioners wouldn't stop it. He could cut the power off. I mean, you know, little blessings in life that we... T- God could just absolutely change thing, things. You know what Congress would do? They would say, see, we told you climate change is coming. By the way, you don't believe me, but you will. In the tribulation period, when the sun gets hot and begins to scorch, guarantee you they'll be screaming climate change. That'll be something that carries all the way into the tribulation period. And God is going to change the climate. There will be global warming, for sure. But do you not think that God could break a nation? God could break China. God can break Russia. God could break Iran. He can break any nation. There's not a nation in the world that's too, too big for God. Don't fight God. God will win. And by the way, it's interesting as a believer because we have to sit back and watch this, don't we? Some of these foreign nations like China, Russia, Turkey, they're, they're strengthening themselves. They're strengthening themselves. Well, if you study God's Word, what do you discover? The armies of the east, the armies of the north, all those armies are going to be mighty armies that play a role in the end time. God told us that. But they're flexing their muscle. But Almighty God is allowing that. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. Imagine this, it's like, Getting, taking your hand like this and pouring just a little bit of water in your hand. You know those little lines there? You can take your hand and squeeze it and you can make it run out these two fingers or you could make it run out your thumb or you could make it run out the body. Just, just whichever way you wanted to do that. And the writer of the Proverbs says, let me tell you something, the mightiest heart that you can ever imagine is like a little trickle of water in a hand here. And you know what God does? God makes it go whichever way He wants. Do I want Him to do this? Do I want Him to do that? Or do I want Him to do this? And you know, I'm sorry to offend free will here. There really is no such thing as total free will. No such thing as total free will. Maybe I'll preach a message on that sometime. But Almighty God... He has His way, and He is sovereign, and He's powerful, and He's in control, and He does what He wants. And you know what He did? Listen to this. He caused the king in Nineveh to repent. And the people of Nineveh to repent. You want to know why? Because He wanted them to repent. And they listened and they believed. So don't fight God. He'll win. The second lesson we learn is sometimes... God gives second chances. Sometimes. Not all the time. You know, I read some stories this past week about some people who had kept on saying no to God. And what did God do? He just bypassed them and went to someone else. That's the humbling thing, by the way, in the Christian life. Did you know that? God gives us chances and opportunities to serve Him. And we have an obligation to respond to that. And if we fail to respond, God will raise someone else up to do what we failed to do. So don't ever, you know, this is a great lesson in life, by the way, don't ever think that all of life or all of a church or all of a ministry, we can apply this to your business as well, or all of a corporation revolves around one person. Because it doesn't. And especially in ministry, you know. God could raise up whoever He wants to do whatever He wants and bring them to get that accomplished. 
So the point is, sometimes God gives second chances, but it's always better to take him on the first, isn't it? Why, why push it to the second? The third lesson we learn is that God is gracious and slow to anger. Now, hold on for a minute. Aren't you so thankful for this? I mean, how many years of your life and my life did we run with our fists stuck up to God, thinking that we're the most powerful thing in our world, nothing has control over us, we're going to have it our way. We, we lived with Burger King theology, you know. Have it your way. Just doing your own thing. Running your own way. And God didn't squash us like a bug on a floor. Instead, He waited for our stubbornness. In His love and mercy, He sent messengers into our life to speak truth to us. He patiently waited waited slowly. He let us have our day and have our time until God began to show us the folly of our sin and how all of that leads to absolutely nothing. And He breaks in and intervenes in our life and shows us His mercy. You know, Jonah knew this. Chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God, I knew that's the kind of God you are. You know why Jonah knew that? Do you know where this passage comes from, by the way? Y'all ready for this? When God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt to come out into Mount Sinai and gave them ten commandments that they should live by and serve Him and be different than the other nations, instead of the nation rejoicing and being grateful, you know what they did? They went straight to the bottom of the mountain, grabbed the golden calf, and had a uh, pride parade. Right there in the bottom of the mountain. And God came down and said, I'm going to kill every one of them. Of course, Moses begins to pray and says, God, if you're going to kill them, kill me too. What's the nation's going to think around the world when you do this to you? Don't do that, God. And God stopped. And then Moses here encounters God and says, God, you are a gracious God, slow to anger, ready to forgive, even stubborn, rebellious people. God, thank you so much. Jonah knew that about God. And by the way, Joel said the same thing in chapter 2. He told the people of Israel, rend your heart, not your garment. God doesn't want you seeing, seeing you put on goat hair. He wants to see the inside of your heart broken because that's more important to Him over our sin than what we do on the outside. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. God doesn't want to destroy people in their life. God wants to forgive and offer grace and mercy and chances and opportunities for people to turn their life and their will over to Him. This is the message of grace, folks. God giving us what we don't deserve, withholding from us what we do. And that's the difference between grace and mercy, by the way. Grace is Him giving what we don't deserve, and mercy is Him withholding what we do. That's judgment. And God actually taking another step in mercy and doing something about it. Providing a way for us to be right with Him. He's so gracious. Peter writes this in 2 Peter, Do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the heart of God. And what do we learn by this? That All the people that we think God wants to judge and damn, He actually wants them to turn to Him. And He wants a messenger to share that truth. 
So what a blessing it is to serve a God with a heart like that. But there's a fourth lesson we learn, and here it is. Every person and nation is responsible to respond to the light that God gives us. Every person, every nation. Now let me say this. The worst place in the world to go to hell from would have to be the United States of America. Folks, we have been flooded with light. Did you know that? Light has been rejected, but still the availability of truth and light here is astounding. And Jesus actually said in different places in the Gospels that he who has much light will be beaten with more stripes. And he who has less light will receive less stripes. Now the concept there is the severity of judgment. And in the end time, by the way, when people are spending eternity away from God, what will determine that is, first of all, their rejection of Christ as Savior. And second of all is what they did with what the light they had. And the people who sinned against a great deal of light will have a great deal of judgment. It's, a, it's an a unbelievable thing to share God's grace and truth and have people just stick their fist or their nose up at it and walk away. Wow! They have no clue what the end tells for that. But every person in every nation is responsible to respond to the light that God gives them. Matthew chapter 12, listen to what Jesus told his generation about this very incident right here in Jonah 3. He had just performed the sign on a deaf, blind, and demon-possessed man who could not walk. He healed him. And the religious leaders gathered around and said he did this by the power of the devil. We're not going to deny that he did a miracle, but he did it by the power of the devil. By the way, that was the unpardonable sin. And that was the sin in which Jesus went right down through there and said, this generation, you Pharisees, you scribes, you have committed the sin that won't be forgiven in this life or in the one to come. And here's why. Because the kingdom's going to be taken from you and given to a people who's worthy of its fruit. This generation has just committed, being started by their leaders and followed by the people, the sin that would not be forgiven. Here's what he said. They came to him right after that incident and said, show us a sign. Can you believe that? They were worse than Jonah. And this is what he answered. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now listen carefully. Talking to those religious leaders in that time that just said that his miracle was performed by the devil. Here's what he told them. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This means that there's probably going to be some evidence at the great white throne judgment for the severity of punishment. God is apparently here going to bring up the incident and the people of Nineveh and say, look at these pagans who never even heard of me and when they heard about my grace and my forgiveness that was offered for their evil, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And I, your Messiah, from the time of Adam and Eve, promised as the seed to come all the way down through the line, came here and proved to you exactly who I was, and you said I was from the devil. The men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And obviously he was talking about himself. You know, as I began to think about this, I started thinking about the human heart. I was asked to preach a funeral this week, have part in it. 
It was at a church that I used to pastor, and dear man passed away. I began to look out at the crowd, and I saw all kinds of people there, and, and I knew some of them. Some of them came to pay respect to this man. There were people there who was faithful, loved the Lord, served the Lord. There were people there who I hadn't seen in a long time. And some of them just as hard as they could be. And they heard a message that day about God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, and the person of Jesus Christ. And how God offers that grace to people. And, and I watched because I wasn't preaching that portion of the service. And I sat there and I just watched. I was up on a stage. I could see. And as the gospel went out, this is what some of them were doing. And you know, my heart, my heart ached. So as I sat there on that stage, this is what I started doing. Oh, Father. They can't hear. They're so hardened. They can't hear. God, just like You did to the king of Nineveh, invade their heart. Open their heart. Burden their heart. Burden their life. Don't let them walk away from grace. Because it's the only hope they have. And I was sitting there staring at them with eternal eyes. Do you ever do that? You ever go to work and look at all these people around you that are so hateful, so vile, so filled with animosity and the whole world against them? Do you ever look at them with eternal eyes and say, look at their heart. So hard toward God. And I mean, their actions are just a result of the hardness of their heart. But instead of being angry at them and just trying to, you know, I'm, I know there's some people we have to keep at arm's length, but when we do, we can pray for them. Because folks, are you listening to me? They don't even know what's coming. They have no clue. The man we preached the funeral for was taking his grandchildren to a doctor's appointment. Had no idea it would be his last drive. But sure enough, he never recovered. That quick, boom! And he was in eternity. I mean, that fast. And that is life, by the way. Don't think that one of us are exempt from it. Not, not one of us know when we're going to draw our last breath. It might be walking out that door. It might be going out on that road. It might be sometime this week. It might be sometime this month. Not one of us knows. We don't know if it's 40 days. It might be 40 minutes. And it might be 40 seconds. And even if it's 40 years, take my word for it, it'll pass before you know it. But ultimately, one day, we are going to stand face to face with a living God. And when we stand face to face with a living God, there's only going to be one question there, and that's this. What have you done with the righteousness of my Son? My Son died on a cross, God, very God in flesh, to give you His righteousness. To cover your sin. To take it away. To give you His righteousness. That's His grace. What have you done with His righteousness? And every person will have to answer the question, I accepted His righteousness, or either I didn't want it, and I thought I would present my own. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks. It's going to be a startling thing. The Apostle Paul went to, to, to the Corinthians on his second letter, and he wrote them this, and listen to what he said. He said, the other apostles and I are working together with God. And we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't just think it's something that you're going to be able to blow off. 
and say, well, we'll listen if we want, and we'll scroll through the phone if we want, and we'll pay attention if we want. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul writes, behold, for some right now, is the favorable time. Right now is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're watching online. And you have never accepted the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf to be your Savior. Maybe you've never done that. I mean, maybe you thought you had a relationship with God or you believed in God. You, you did all these other things, but I'm telling you this morning, there has to come a great exchange between Almighty God and you where you lay your sin on the cross of Calvary and the righteousness of the God-man Himself is applied to your heart and life. And that exchange takes place so that you are not only forgiven, but you are as righteous as Jesus Himself. And if you have never accepted that gift of the grace of God, Paul says today is the day of salvation. Open your heart. And like the men of Nineveh, change your mind about Jesus and what He did on the cross for your behalf. He took your sin and He offered you His righteousness. So that when God looks at you, He doesn't look at a sinner. He looks as a righteous son of His own because He sees you in Jesus Christ. What have you done with the Gospel? And if you have accepted Him as your personal Savior, here's my next question. What are you doing with the greatest message in the world? Don't sit on it. Share it. You never know whose heart God will open. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You this morning for the Word of God. Thank You for the grace of God. Thank You for repentance. Thank You for faith that You give us in Your work. Help us, O God, to be faithful to Your message. First of all, to believe it for ourselves and accept it and embrace it. And then for us to share it with those who have no hope. And Lord, You bring them in our life every day. Give us eyes, Your heart, to see people around us who need You. And then open our mouth that we might speak the truth of the grace of God with others. And Father, we will thank You because we know that You are a loving, gracious, and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Thank You for being that great God to us and giving us the person of Jesus Christ. And may His love and His grace change our heart and our perspective forever. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.